Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. And this is a special bonus episode of the Mythic Masculine podcast. It was actually recorded over a year ago uh, in response to an invitation to speak uh, to another community uh, around the themes of masculinity and sex. And I had thought of, of course, this sort of key motif within the uh, Iron John book uh, on stealing the key. Uh, and more recently, uh, as in very soon, starting January 26th of 2022, I will be hosting a new course where we'll spend six weeks going into the story of Iron John, made famous by Robert Bly, of course, in his book of the same name. Uh, in this course, I will be joined by a number of special guests, including Stephen Jenkinson, uh, Michael Gay, uh, Ramon Parrish and others um, and the course itself is actually open to all genders uh, which is the first actually I've taught the course or I've taught the book actually you know, a couple times but this is the first time it will be open to all genders and so this conversation between myself and Heather which uh, you'll who you'll meet in a moment um, goes into that scene in more detail and actually provides a really beautiful introduction to uh, the kinds of uh, conversations we'll have within the Revisiting Iron John course. And now if you're interested to register for that, head over to revisitingironjohn.com and that'll redirect you to uh, the Rose Center, which is uh, where the, the course is in partnership with. Um, regardless, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation between myself and Heather, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. So away we go. Greetings, dear listener. I am Ian McKenzie, host of the Mythic Masculine Podcast, and this is a special episode, a uh, special bonus exploration, um, based somewhat on the Iron John tale, made famous by Robert Bly, uh, but comes from, initially from the Brothers Grimm. Uh, and this is an exploration of a particular um, aspects of the story around masculinity and sexuality. And how it's going to proceed is very soon I will open with a telling of Iron John. Um, but first, I'd love to introduce uh, my guest on this bonus um, episode, Heather Pinnell. Welcome to this conversation. Thank you for having me. Heather is a longtime friend. She is an accomplished photographer. She's also a transpersonal relationship guide and the founder of Kin of Kind of which you can find on Instagram. Yes, indeed. And if you could say a few words about what people might find on Kin of Kind. Mm -hmm. So Kin of Kind is my new exploration that I'm birthing into the world. I was previously the co-founder of another brand that was primarily focused on conscious relationship work. And now I'm expanding into other territories including bringing on different experts um, in a whole lot of different fields. I want to really create a space where someone can arrive and find tools and resources to explore the nature of reality and also explore their own mind and improve their relationships while they're at it. Awesome. Be sure to check it out. Kin of Kind on Instagram. I thought it would be great to have Heather in this conversation. Um, one, because of the subject matter around masculinity and sexuality, um, to also have, uh, one who spent a lot of time in gender dynamics and exploring sexuality and all these different uh, aspects that 
it would be great to actually have a conversation rather than a monologue around these things. Um, and so let's see where we go. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> uh, and so to begin, uh, once again, Iron John, the tale made famous by Robert Bly um, in the late 80s, early 90s, a book came out of the same title, Iron John, um, which really kickstarted the mythopoetic men's movement, of which a lot could be said about that. And I go into more detail around looking at that time in history, culturally, historically. Um, but suffice to say that uh, it really sparked something significant in the culture at the time and became a New York Times bestseller for many, many weeks. And I think still, you know, continues to be uh, largely, I think, his most famous work, of which Bly himself was an accomplished poet many years before the book came out and that he turned to men's work. Um, but I think it's in a, there's many elements actually that are really you know, stand, uh, stand the kind of the test of time in terms of the relevance to contemporary questions around masculinity and sexuality and the rest. Um, and so this, this opening for me, um, is a particular piece, which I feel reveals a way of, I mean, exploring, uh, masculinity, sexuality, relation to the feminine relation to the mother, um, which you'll see in the telling, which, um, I suppose I could begin now. There was once a king who had a great forest near his palace, full of all kinds of wild animals. One day he sent out a huntsman to shoot him a roe, but he did not come back. Perhaps some accident has befallen him, said the king. And the next day he sent out two more huntsmen who were to search for him, but they too never came back. Then on the third day, he sent for all of his huntsmen and said, Scour the whole forest and do not give up until you have found all three. But these also, none came home again. And the pack of hounds which they had taken with them, none were seen more. From that time forth, no one would any longer venture into the forest. And it lay there in deep stillness and solitude, and nothing was seen of it. This lasted for many years, when a strange huntsman announced himself to the king and offered to go into the dangerous forest. The king, however, would not give his consent and said, it is not safe in there. I fear he would fare no better than the others and he would never come out again. The huntsman replied, Lord, I will venture it at my own risk for I fear nothing. It was not long before the dog fell into some game on the way and wanted to pursue it. But hardly had the dog run two steps when it stood before a deep pool and could go no farther, for a naked arm stretched itself out of the water, seized it, and drew it under. When the huntsman saw that, he went back and fetched three men to come with buckets and bail out the water. When they could see the bottom, there lay a wild man whose body was brown like rusty iron and whose hair hung over his face down to his knees. They bound him in chains and led him away to the castle. There was great astonishment over the wild man. The king, however, had him put in an iron cage in the courtyard and forbade the door to be open on pain of death. And the queen herself was to take the key into her keeping. And from this time forth, everyone could go into the forest with safety. Now the king had a son of eight years who was once playing in the courtyard. And while he was playing, his golden ball fell into the cage. 
The boy ran hither and said, Give me my bala. And the wild man answered, Not until thou hast opened the door for me. The boy ran away. And the way Bly tells this, he says, Most men never come back to the cage. But some, usually around 35 or so, find the courage to approach the cage again. And they ask the wild man, can I have my golden ball back? And the wild man says, no, you have to open my door. And perhaps at that time, the boy says, well, how do I open the door? And the wild man says, you need the key. And the key is under your mother's pillow. And perhaps we'll leave it there, of this initial chapter of the story. And so I want to pause, actually. You've heard this story before, as you said. Yes, I have. Yeah. And I'd love to ask you first, what are your impressions of hearing this story? What were your impressions? And maybe you've heard, you know, you, you maybe know a little bit more now, but what were your impressions initially upon hearing this? Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot going on in this story. There's a lot of symbolism and a lot of different ways you can approach this story. Um, we were talking earlier about, you know, the perspective of looking at the story almost like a dream. So if you were the boy in the dream and you're actually a man having this dream or any person having this dream, that every character character in the dream could actually be symbolic of an aspect of you, you know, so the character that is the beast is some part of you. The character that is the huntsman is some part of you. Even the mother, some part of you. I like looking at things through that angle because it really allows us to explore things from a self-responsibility perspective. And I think it can open up a lot of dialogue around how we perceive things, how we deal things with life, you know, internally in our own inner psyche. But we were discussing how, of course, my dog is moaning next to me. If people can hear that, he likes to get involved. Um, but we were also discussing how, how this actually shows up in a more tangible way in our lives and how, you know, some individuals hearing this might immediately go, okay, of course the key is under the mother's pillow. And, you know, the mother is the one holding the boy back from being able to get his golden ball. And what does that mean? And you could see that as well. She was given the key because she can be trusted with it. Um, or you could see that as she's being blamed for holding this beast back. So I'm curious to hear more about your perspectives on the role of the mother in the story and why the key is under her pillow and, you know, to explore how some people might be even slight, slightly offended by that, you know, um, because I think it's important to look at whether or not it is offensive or not could be very personal for people. But I do think that this story does speak to something about the relationship between a boy and his mother and thusly the relationship that a man might have with women at large. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'd love to offer a little perspective that Bly gives on, in the way he tells the story, um, uh, because it does inform a lot of at least my initial understanding. So one can look at the story, uh, like you said, um, and see different aspects of one's own 
psyche and and uh, one particular lens of course is is archetypally uh and you see already within the telling that there's a number of archetypes present uh there's a huntsman uh i.e it could be variation of the warrior there's the king as the sovereign uh there's the boy uh as the sort of pure innocence or pure joy uh there's the wild man as an archetype and of course the queen so there's a lot of play uh, already in the story um and uh, the way the Blight tells it around this um, connection to the wild man. Now, that was a big piece of the initial men's movement, which was this need to reclaim what was characterized as as the wild man. And it was given a lot of flack, certainly at the time, as this kind of cliche of men going out to the forest naked, you know, drumming and around the fire. Um, and it caused quite a media stir, actually, at the time, historically, that um, uh, others who were right there the, in the middle of it, Michael Mead, as well as Bly, James Hillman, others. Uh, Michael recounts about how the first time they went out to these, you know, wild man gatherings in the woods, they were met by media who would be like standing outside in the parking lot, you know, kind of like asking them, hey, what's going on in there? This mysterious um, ceremonial happening. Um, and at the same time, like it was never as maybe as dramatic as it was, you know, maybe mm, characterized by the media that Mead saw it as deep soul work, actually as healing work. And so the wild man in this sense was posited perhaps different than what uh, they called the savage man. Now the savage man from that understanding is, you know, you look out in the world, you see all the violence that's perpetuated by largely by men um, against women, against each other, against the environment. And like myself as a young man, I was deeply um, kind of like horrified by the behavior of men. And in fact, set up a, kind of oppositional relationship, I was like, well, I don't want to be a man if that's what being a man is. And so I was kind of like, I'll be a good boy, right? I'll be good. I'll be a good one. And I'll be an ally to women. Uh, and <clears throat> that would be how I would serve the feminine, right? I, I would not be like a, the, you know, the savage man. Um, and of course I learned much later in my years that to split off an aspect of myself, my sort of, mm, deep masculinity is, uh, in fact, not of service. And in fact, makes me in some ways less trustworthy actually, um, to women and to, um, men even that in fact, that deep distrust of men certainly didn't do much to help actually heal the wounds of masculinity, not in myself and not, you know, in other men collectively. And so this connection to the wild man was really meant to, I think, re reconnect this deep connection to the wild or the wildness of life itself. Um, kind of the deep instinctual, the unconstrained, the uncivilized, if civilized means a kind of domestication. Uh, and so it was sort of breaking free from that. And so in the story, as Bly tells it, that this is what the wild man represents, a kind of a connection once again to this sort of primordial nature that lies at the heart of all men. I have two questions for you. Sure. One of the things that you said in here about being a good boy the immediate thing that I thought of was all of these memes that we see going around of how women always like the bad boy and the bad boy always wins. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And maybe we can jam on that. And then my other curiosity is, is how does this story play into or speak to, or does it at all to those who are non-gendered or gender non-binary or, you know, maybe feel like they're 
a mix of like a, a middle of the line mix of masculine and feminine energy, because I think that there's, it's, there's a lot of conversation right now about masculine and feminine energy. And I think there's a lot of confusion about what that even is. And it's actually can be quite harmful in certain circumstances when it's used um, inappropriately or it's misappropriated in certain ways. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on those two things. Sure. Yeah. Big questions. So the second one will bookmark and reapproach. Um, the first question around bad boy, you know, good boy is, I mean, it's compelling because in some ways I feel this, the cliche way of, I think, recognizing it often for, you know, got quote, good guys is they often get friend zoned, right? That's one way it's said, which is, I mean, we can unpack that for a while, but there's the sense of, you know, I'll be a nice guy. I'll, I'll be the ally. And at the same time, women don't tend to find that, that, you know, quote, hot or attractive, um, sort of, you know, classically or cliche. And there's a reason for that, I think, which is the bad boy in this case represents some of that undomestic nature, the, the, or the, yeah, the rebel, you know, the, the undomesticated in the fashion, but there's something still very adolescent about that sense of a bad boy, which is the sort of rebel with no cause, right. Just to be a rebel. Um, and there, I think that there is a particular adolescent woman that sees that as attractive, right? Because there is a certain erotic kind of uncertainty or wildness there, which is, you know, part of it. Um, and so I think for men that, uh, sort of allow that domestication or, or, or play the role of the good boy, thinking that that's of service, right. Then they cut themselves off from those deep places. And that's what I experienced for many, many years. Um, until, you know, surprise, surprise around 35, actually, when, you know, for me, what it looked like was essentially my marriage crumbling, um, and stepping into an exploration of what I would call like the, the shadow of sexuality of my experience of sexuality, stepping into kink, stepping into, you know, these other rounds, which prior to that I deemed kind of like deviant or kinky or, you know, sort of hidden and, and some ways like, you know, oppositional to the light and to the pure and all of that. And that's something in this culture, particularly, which I think is very prevalent and women experience that I think differently of which, they experience the, the kind of, you know, are you the girl that you, the guy wants to take home to his parents or the one that, um, he dreams about, you know, or, or checks out on his computer, you know, late at night after everyone's in bed. Like that's the split that often, uh, I've understood that we, uh, women experience. Um, and with that is the same split that men experience, but now projected outward to women. Yeah. And I'm also curious about like who made that meme, you know, that meme of, you know, women are only interested in the bad boy. I think it's the angry adolescent good boy who hasn't had that engagement with that primal nature, who hasn't accepted this wild man within and then is, you know, coming out saying, oh, you know, screw women who only like the the bad boy. You know, it's like this whole, again, like abdicating responsibility for you know, not stepping into that energy as well. And of course, like you said, there's the adolescent um, female side of that or woman's mind side of that, if we're going to use those terms, um, that plays into that as well, that is seeking some kind of uh, uninhibited male energy, maybe even to allow her to step into her wild woman. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this takes me back to the story, actually, which is uh, linking it when I once again to the boy and the golden ball, because there's a piece in here, I think, which is really, um, helpful, which is now in the story, one could understand the boy again, as this connection to the pure, 
pure joy of boyishness. And, um, you know, going back to your other question for a second, I mean, we can unpack a couple of different perspectives, I think a bit later for the purposes of this moment, I'm happy to maybe apply it to those who are male identified right? her sort of are, are been, have a male identified experience in this culture, let's say. Uh, so there's this deep connection to the pure joy of just, you know, being alive. And then I think hopefully men don't lose that. But of course, many do in this culture where we're, you know, told to mature and put down childish things and all the rest. But there is that place, that pure joy. I see it in my son, right? He's two and he's just this little ball of, you know, like, wow, experiencing and playfulness and all the rest. And so the golden ball in that sense represents that, that kind of original play, um, the original joy of being alive. And at some point, um, men lose that typically along the way. And the connection to sexuality and the feminine is actually really interesting one because this is drawing a little bit upon my experience at Tamera, which is a community in Portugal, um, of which has really done a lot of work around this particular issue. Um, but how they understand it is that at a certain point, a boy begins to tap into his sexuality, right? That, that sort of adolescent erotic being begins to come online. And what happens in a culture where the mothers don't have their own initiatory or sort of integrated sexual uh, aspects of themselves, they find that moment generally goes one of two ways. Uh, women or mothers will ignore that it's happening uh, and kind of like, oh, I don't know what to do with it and be confused by it. Uh, or they'll turn away actually from the boy or they'll shame him inadvertently, right? And not... And I'm not blaming mothers in the sense of, yeah, terrible mothers out there. It's like, because of that energy is integrated in themselves, it's very difficult to be, to receive it in a beautiful way. And, you know, that could look like, yeah, like unconscious shaming or inadvertent shaming. I myself experienced, for example, here's a very kind of tangible example. You know, one of the first things I bought with the credit card when I turned around 17, 18, or I you know I was a bit early to get a credit card, but uh, I bought an issue of Maxim magazine, which is understood as, uh, they call them lad mags, actually, which, you know, not full sort of uh, porno, like um, Playboy or whatever. Those are more like, you know, men magazines, but Maxim are kind of porn light, right? Just kind of like a scantily clad. And uh, so I ordered a subscription to Maxim and the gift that came along with the subscription was um, another handbook that said uh, 99 ways to make her moan was this like extra handbook, right? Which wasn't really about sex because it's again, aimed at slightly younger men or boys, but it was sort of like read her, her favorite book or like tickle her ear. Or like, it was just kind of like, some of it was pretty, you know, um, vanilla, let's say. And anyway, so my mom though, please don't tickle my ear. <laughs> so, so my mother, when I received the, the subscription, um, my dad actually, he happens to have the same name as me. Right. So there you go. Addressed to this, you know, it was like, oh, it's for my dad. And often she'll collect his mail from her, or open it, or whatever. So she opened that and then found this book, right? 99 Ways to Make Her Moan. And I remember coming home from school and my mom kind of like, hey, I want to talk to you. And I'm like, okay. And we had a conversation where she basically was like, you know, what is this here? And I remember again that feeling of like the shame of, uh oh, like I shouldn't have done that or it's not okay right. That I have this. And, and, you know, I was like, I don't know, I, I think I might've been actually 18. So in some sense, you know, I was still adult, but adult by some standards, but again, I, it, I don't, again, I want to blame my mom for this, but it's like that same sense of like, this is not okay. My sexuality is not okay. Um, and that I should feel ashamed by it. And that messaging is very pervasive in our culture. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Does your mother have a Christian background? Uh, she, well, religious, some religious background. Religious. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I would agree that, um, the Western culture has a huge issue with sexuality in general. Um, we're very stunted in that regard. And even in my own family system, I experienced sexual shame and have done a lot of work to overcome that. I think in general, my, my parents having heard stories from other people did a better job than most at dealing with it. My mom was a nurse, so she was very medical in certain ways about things, very practical. And these are the facts kind of a thing. So I, I'm just curious to hear more about, you know, the impact that that had on you at the time as a little boy, you're sitting there with your mom. She's kind of giving you the vibe of this. There's something wrong here. So how did you deal with that? Like, how did you internalize that? What did your, what was the story that you made up at that point? Because here's this woman, you know, who in many ways is the archetype of all women for you until such a point that you move beyond that relationship with the mother, but you're learning how to relate to women throughout your entire life with her. And now you're sitting with her, you're exploring your sexuality as a male. You want to learn how to connect with women in this way. And you're feeling excited about that. And suddenly there's this like shame bomb mm-hmm. on you. Yeah. Bly has this term. He calls it uh, a baptism of shame. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I feel in a way like, Oh, my mom, she did the, like, but she's just doing what the culture is very much like. Those are the messages of the culture at large. And I'll say that for, you know, me having that experience now combined also with remember, like what I said, looking out at the culture and seeing a very, um, violent, often sexually violent culture, you know, rape and pillage and I mean, all this stuff. Right. So again, those two messages of one, you know, coming from the archetypal mother, your sexuality is not okay. Looking out of the world and saying, Oh yeah, men's sexuality is like really not okay. And so the internalization of that is the real fear of my sexual potency. That's how it would show up. And so, uh, right up until, you know, even things like self-pleasure, right. Where the classic kind of American pie thing is, you know, the, the young boy in this room self-pleasuring and like, you know, the mom comes in or like knocks or whatever. And it's such a classic kind of shame moment, um, which is generally very awkward. And, you know, again, that's kind of internalized shame. And so, again, I think a lot of men carry this as the DNA of their sexuality. And again, I mean, so much so even uh, more recently, I was seeing a film called uh, The Octopus Teacher. If you've either heard of it or maybe seen it. No, I've heard of it. I have yet to see it. Yeah, it's called my actually, sorry, My Octopus Teacher. But it's about this South African fellow. He's a sort of a later middle aged man who spent many years or sorry, a whole year tracking an octopus um, and just like befriending this female octopus. It's quite a beautiful story, actually. But there's a kind of erotic edge to it, which is really interesting. Uh, maybe sensual edge, I'd say, because he's really connecting to the world and the wild. And the memes apparently are already out there about like, ooh, did he have sex with the squid? Like, But again, to me, that's another example of this kind of discomfort that the culture has with male sexuality, allowing it to be anything other than either like awkward or like rapey, right? So this is what I'm saying. It took a long time for me to be able to approach a kind of healing that rift, that internalized rift around this even okayness around male sexuality. And so going back to, again, like the wild man, this is where that link happens because the key in this case is under the mother's pillow to access the wild man, right? And the link there to the queen, of course, right, is sort of the original archetypal mother, is that um, 
you know, in the book, Bly says uh, that a man, and sometimes he gives, you know, when he gave workshops on this in mixed genders, he said some men or you know, a man would stand up and say, well, why does it have to be stolen? Like, can I just ask? And the, he says, had such a good line in the book. He says something like, all the women in the room wanted to kill him. The man who says it. And it's such an interesting line, right? Because you might be like, wait, what? How does that compute? But there's something about, again, this, I don't know, permission-based, like almost the same uh, apologetic man who's like, mom, can I have the key back? Like it's okay. I, when you first were explaining that to me that all the women want to kill him, I was like, what is he talking about? And then it hit me and I was like, Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, which is for me. And I'll say, you know, obviously I've had men who are lovers and I've had men who are lovers who have not yet opened that door and let the wild man come out. And there's a lot of, um, Oh gosh, how do I describe this? That asking energy that, um, it's almost like this, this fear of, I have to give you permission for you to be you. Mm -hmm. And really a lot of women, myself included, want to be taken. And of course there's a lot of trust dynamics and things built up in that. But when you've built up that trust and there's that connection there and you're in the bedroom and you want to be taken and then your man is hesitating, kind of asking you, can I, it just totally kills it. So yeah, I, I get where you're coming from in that. Yeah. And I would argue that, the, you know, again, this, this link to, so what does it mean? You know, does it mean to overpower the mother or to, um, kind of like dismiss the mother or like denigrate the mother, right? This is where it gets a bit dicey in terms of how to interpret that. I mean, Bly doesn't indicate that at all. And I would say how that's happened in my own experience. I could share a little bit about how I feel like I stole the key, but you know, back, um, was, um, I mean, in particular experiences, he says, you know, a man who, I don't know, you know, holds a, holds a all night fire in the wilderness, you know, stole a little bit of the key back that night. You know, the man who danced for six hours, you know, with abandon, you know, got a little bit of the key back that night. So like, there's this link to like, almost like a somatic reclamation and a kind of, um, original connection to source or to, to mother, like the great mother, right. Which to me feels like that's much more of the gateway into being able to reclaim those places. And I'll say a little bit too, about the, the role of rites of passage in this regard, particularly around this, because I think. In some ways, the lens of um, the threshold from adolescent to adult, particularly around this time in a lot of traditional cultures, was around this idea of becoming a man. And I'll just say from the men's side, that there's this journey they have to take, right? And there's a lot to be said around how the structure of a child is really oriented to themselves, right? Like, which is totally valid and normal. And they are the center of the universe. This is really like the function, the nature of a child is to be the center of their universe. Um, and at a certain point, a lot of traditional cultures understood that for that to continue un uninterrupted into quote adulthood was dangerous because then you got a lot of, uh, you know, olders essentially running around with mm, kids psychologies of them being the center of the universe, which is basically what we have in modern culture. And so there's this necessity to meaningfully traumatize them actually, which is one way to understand it, um, to bring them to that place of the breakdown of the egoic structures of adolescence to then reconstitute or invite them into it's kind of a maturity of which they're connected to the bigger story of life. Now the sexual threshold though is not well understood that that's also, I believe a big part of that because again, going back to 
as an individual, as an individual boy, their experience of the feminine is rightly so the mother. That, that you know, the mother is everything, right? Especially as a young age. I mean, I look at my son, right? And mama is everything, right? She's the harbor. She's the sustenance. She's everything. Um, and I see there's a degree of entitlement that is certainly present where, you know, he's getting a little older now. And yet this kind of like mom's on tap all the time, according to him, right? Um, and so there's a kind of necessity to break that relationship to the physical mother um, as the full constellation of that archetype to the to the boy and then to reconstitute from a place of a mature relationship where they in a way the, the physical mother is then let off the hook from being the archetypal mother right that's how i see it it's actually like oh wow how beautiful this woman birthed me and gave love and, and sustained all that stuff but then at a certain point again that has to be actually in a way dissolved or composted or put to rest and then a reapproach needed because the connection to the great mother is really where true sustenance or true connection to source comes from. And then again, it, it kickstarts like a whole other orientation of courtship and reciprocity and like um, a kind of a mature lover, which can then meet a woman in like a physical woman in person without all of that baggage. I mean, ideally, right? Because maybe the, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about, you know, what is it to continually meet, um, women who are all frustrated by a kind of mother son dynamic, which seems uninterrupted in their relationships. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I, 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 I think that it goes both ways. You know what I mean? Like there's on the side of it for women, it's about learning how to be in such a way where we're also not playing into the mother archetype. We're also not playing into that dynamic and therefore, if a man approaches us in that way, in that manner, it just can't work. It can't exist. It's just not attractive. It doesn't appeal. You know, it it just has no place because the polarity just, it won't go. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an element there too for women, you know, lo looking at our own mythopoetic stories, looking at our own work so that we can also embrace this wild woman archetype that has been suppressed for us as well. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this are going to be curious about that. So maybe you could provide some resources around that as well. But yeah, absolutely. It's frustrating to engage with that. And I've definitely had my own experiences of that being, especially as a highly independent woman, self-made, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it just, it sets up a dynamic sometimes and it can absolutely be very frustrating. And I also do have to look at the, the ways that I contributed to that. But something that you said really stood out to me, which was this piece around entitlement and thinking about, you know, I never really sat and thought about the mother as this sort of tap that the little boy, you know, can just run over and get his milk and get his nourishment whenever he wants. And the mother, of course, is going to do that because that's her role with him at that time. And if we never turn that off, if we never shift that dynamic to a reciprocity dynamic, then of course we get this whole thing that happens that we're seeing so prevalent in our culture and in society today, where men have this entitlement with women of you should have sex with me because I asked. And if you don't, well then F you. Right. And then this, slut shaming towards women you know if you don't do what i want you to do which is really i want you to you know 
open for me in whatever way I want you to open for me whenever I want you to open for me. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, well then watch out. I'm going to put you up on the cross and burn you, you know? So, and I think there's a lot to unpack in that, that we need to look at how do we, you know, create these rites of passages? How do we shift this dynamic? And, you know, if it hasn't happened for you as a kid, how do we do that today? How do we shift that dynamic right now? Mm-hmm. I want to bookmark to or, or build on what you said to around entitlement for men's, for women's bodies, which is actually what I've understood to be one way of also understanding the incel phenomenon, which is the involuntary celibate, right? Which um, there's pretty horrific news stories that have come out right around essentially men enacting, you know, significantly violent attacks on women because of their feeling of being shut out of access to their bodies or access to sex. And that is obviously an extreme example of that, but it's the very same phenomenon, which is essentially this, I, why aren't you available to me at any time? And on the one hand, one could say, well, what, what the fuck is with men? Why would they think that or feel that way? And you brought it with the link, like I was saying around this sense that, well, the mother is always supposed to be there um, for me. And that also manifests in other ways, which are maybe a little less perceivable. But for example, a lot of men seek uh, uh, counsel, um, vulnerability with women only, right? Because like, there's a feeling of safety of like, well, the feminine is nurturing, the feminine is safe to do that. And they don't seek counsel. They don't seek a kind of comfort from men in that fashion. And that's a challenge or that's a problem, actually, I see, because then it sets up again women as the source of this kind of nourishment or this kind of need. And the other thing is, uh, I would say, and this is something I experienced for a long time, which is seeking sex with women as a grounding, as a sense of, of, of embodiment, actually, when I myself would be in a phase of maybe overly um, kind of hovering or nervous system was activated, you know, I would look to sex as a way of grounding through the woman's body. Actually, that's how I understand it now. And so I think it's vital for men to be able to actually find ways to ground uh, without that, without that access to the feminine, um, both within themselves and then practices that they could do of embodiment and movement and the rest. And then also to seek counsel and solidarity and real depth with other men, because then again, it frees that from being only provided by women. Yeah. And I think what that sets up is the mommy dynamic. You know, of course, women want men to be able to open up to them. But if that becomes the only place in which they do it, again, it's like you're this fountain of nourishment in every way and you have to be available for that all the time it can kill the other aspects of the relationship that don't have the room to thrive because you're being put into that position all the time of the emotional, psychological, physical nourisher, mm-hmm. right? And women aren't just the mother. We're many things and we can be that and do that with joy with our partners, but it can't only be that. And it can't be an expectation either. And I think this is another thing that it kind of falls more into the relationship dynamic spectrum, which is when we set up all of these expectations on our partner of who they need to be for us, but we're not seeking or getting that anywhere else. It sets us up for failure because Mm -hmm. nobody can be everything for you when you want them to be it for you all the time. Mm -hmm. This kind of entitlement dynamic that can go either way, of course, but absolutely this, this energy of women being sort of the emotional harbor. And I think that it also comes from 
and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm curious to hear more about this from you, is that a lot of men are quite emotionally stunted. This whole idea that, you know, boys don't cry and feeling like if they show their emotions to other men that they'll be shamed, they'll, they'll be ridiculed, um, that their masculinity will be called to question, all of these things. So again, they're not actually free with other men. And so how can they be totally free within themselves if they're constantly constricting this very natural part of who they are? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, what I feel hopeful by is that, you know, I've talked to younger generations. It does seem that there's been a significant shift. Certainly like when I talk about older generation than me, yeah, they seem deeply stunted emotionally. Um, uh, there's this, I can't remember if I read about it in Bly's book, um, or no, he said something like, you know, when men actually turn inward often, at least in his generation, when they turn inward to even feel what they're feeling, you know, consciously like, okay, what am I actually feeling? He said, most men feel nothing as in they're numb, right? And, and particularly around the chest in that region um, because the sensitivity has been atrophied. And for the next following generation, you know, a lot of their work was actually catharsis, which the best definition of catharsis I've understood it to be from uh, another fellow, Michael Gay, who's um, a therapist and he does a lot of wilderness rites of passage work. But he said, catharsis is really helpful when you're just trying to wake up the senses again, right? And, and in some ways it feels a bit extreme and uh, you're yelling and like punching pillows and all that. But it can be really helpful to resensitize. But then from there, it's like you need consciousness around, okay, what's actually going on? You know, what is, what's the nuance? What's the subtlety? And so for a lot of men uh, then, that was about just waking it up. And now I feel there has been, you know, a real expansion, particularly for youngers um, uh, that I've talked to and seen, you know, there's this like, what do you mean I can't cry? Of course I can. Like this kind of thing. So I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like within a couple of generations, feels at least um, more uh, accessible for, for men in particular. Let's return to the question you'd asked earlier around, you know, what it, what's there in this story for those that maybe don't identify as men or masculine? Um, is there something in here? And, you know, I just want to bring up a conversation I had earlier today, actually, with another woman, uh, Jane Caputi, who's a longtime feminist author and professor. Um, and she quotes in her book a really great articulation of something which I've been tracking for a while, and I couldn't quite speak it in the way that she crystallized, which was... I've had conversations with those who identify as queer and non-binary and activists in those realms, and they really rail against what they call gender essentialism, right? Which is the idea that uh, gender is, you know, this and men have to be like this and women are like this and like, that's it. Um, and understandably, those that don't fit into that paradigm, which is basically everybody, uh, they're pretty upset about that. And they say, well, we have to get rid of essentialism, right? So now all of a sudden everything's relationally subjective, so it's like, be who you want to be, you know, do what you want. And in some ways that feels like a victory, right? Of like, yeah, throw it all out. But then if you encounter indigenous groups that you recognize that they have a very different understanding, typically around things like masculine, feminine roles, particularly around ceremony, all these things, which don't feel like the same kind of essentialism that you encounter in Western culture. And so she was just making the case that yes to railing against a kind of constrictive essentialism, but that at the same time, don't lose the ability to talk about things with this language because it feels like there's there, there's still deep value in that. Uh, and so that's what I would say to around this question of story. That story, um, you know, there's no... There's no uh, this, I'm thinking of my other teacher, Stephen Jenkinson, but he says, there's no argument in a story and there's no story in an argument. So it's easy to keep them apart. 
And that's the power of story. That's the power of mythology is that, you know, they can be interpreted. I mean, infinite number of ways. They're prismatic in a way, right? Whoever's looking at the story can interpret it in, in a multitude of ways. And in that sense, they're, they're not sort of a crystallized, this is the way it is. Right. And so even as we turn to the story again and unpack it here, it like offers different nuances and different colors and different shades. And so I feel that capacity to offer something to whoever, you know, wherever they fit on the gender spectrum, whether we're talking again, internal psychological or mythic or whatever it is, still feels like it reveals something that, um, illuminates some aspect of one's experience. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that's why I was saying for me, when I engage with these stories and the symbolism and this kind of mythopoetic journey that we can go on, I do often like to look at it through a lens of it being a dreamscape and seeing myself in every character, because as you're saying, no person is fully this or fully that we're all on the spectrum of, of something, you know what I mean? And when I engage with a story in that way, because I think that humans, humans want to belong. They want to be able to see themselves in everything they engage with. Can we? No, absolutely not. There's going to be certain things that we engage with where we feel like we don't belong or we're, we're not represented. That's going to happen. But with stories like this, there's nobody saying, you know, you can't be the boy. Mm -hmm. You can't be the king or you can't be the mother. So it can be useful for my own personal exploration. Sometimes I'll do that when I'm engaging with these things is experience it through that lens and see, is there something for me in here? Now, I wonder, I have a question for you. Do you think that based on our, our cultural conditioning where, you know, there has been a lot of shame around not being straight, not, not, um, identifying as a man or a woman. Do you think as a result of that, we have lost touch with the potential, um, folklore and poetry and works of art and spaces that would have naturally occurred for people who are non-binary for those who don't fall into one category or the other, that those things would be more in existence and be more present if we didn't have this undercurrent of fear of the unknown of fear of being anything other than this or that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you highlight something which I think is so much of the foundation of modernity, which is, um, placelessness, right. Or peoplelessness, because, you know, my encounters with indigenous people is they have very specific understanding about their place in the world and the mythic stories that underpin, you know, how they came to be and, what's meaningful to them. And they don't seem to universalize any of it, right? They just, it's very specific to them. And so modernity's very DNA is universal in that there's a reason why as more and more places become more quote modern, they start to look the same, right? They start to look less like anywhere and, and, or they look like everywhere. And so I think this is partly what modern people are inflicted with is because we've lost touch to our own ancestry our own stash of mythic stories and, and ways of understanding the world that were deeply relational to a specific place. And we're trying to cobble together or trying to reawaken a, a shared language or shared understanding, but we're hobbled by the fact that, you know, this is a very interesting time where um, we're sort of stirred together and trying to kind of come up with a shared something. Right. And often that looks like appropriation. Often that looks like, well, they have, you know, these indigenous peoples have got something that feels more real. So like, can I do that? And, you know, there's a kind of poverty there that is, needs to be 
not skirted over in some sense. And so I think any of these conversations around, you know, how do we bring back these myths and all this stuff, it is really helpful to begin to look at one's own lineages, right? And be like, whoa, we had those stories. We had, you know, and this Grimm story, I believe comes from Germany or at least around that area, sort of Northern Europe of which, you know, there's deep, deep uh, wisdom from those areas of the world that was, you know, has been colonized for a long time, but still remain possible to, you know, court back and to reveal. And I think that is part of this work that's being done and trying to find a shared language, you know, amidst the amnesia of, you know, the ever new and keep moving. And I think for me too, it's like, you know, a simple question. Do you relate to this story? Do you see mm-hmm. yourself in the story? Mm-hmm. Which I think you do. And I like learning about other people and their experience. I don't necessarily relate to this story in the way that you might relate to it, sure. but being able to read it in a lot of ways for me, engaging with these mythopoetic stories about male sexuality, um, the masculine psyche, it, it does give me a window into how you might experience the world and how things might be for you. And I'm a person who loves learning how to relate to people, all types of people, in a more compassionate, understanding, empathetic way. And when I read these stories and I have these conversations with individuals like yourself, I start to understand how you experience the world and how you see things and what that might be like for you. And it, and it stirs a lot of curiosity for Mm -hmm. me within, you know, what's your experience like relating to women? What's your experience like relating to other men? What's your experience like in these men's groups, Mm -hmm. in these spaces, Um, And a whole slew of questions come up around that because one thing that I wanted to touch on that I have heard from women and from people in general about men's groups is this fear that it's going to become like the good old boys club, you know, where it's this patriarchal dominance, you know, this whole perpetuation of one of the issues that we're seeing in the modern world today. So how do you see these spaces differentiating or what is the, the key thing that these men's groups need to hold in order to not go down that road that Mm -hmm. evidently is not serving any longer? Mm -hmm. Great question. You know, it's interesting. It's a bit of a, I understand the suspicion, right? Around what happens in these groups. And, And certainly they're not all the same. But the ones, the men's groups that I've experienced of which the aim is to develop a kind of uh, shared space of vulnerability, of connection, of trust among men, uh, what happens is um, how I understand it archetypally or, or from a polarity perspective is that a lot of men can't put down the masculine unless they're supported by those who are. That makes sense. So if the masculine in this case is understood as the kind of holding energy, right. Of the, of the holding up or the, you know, the pillar or the, um, that sense of having it together, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, men have a hard time putting it down, particularly with women. If they're seeking that kind of, this one saying vulnerability or to, the ability to rest, right. To put it down. If women can't hold the masculine, Right. Because there you go. You can see it now immediately. Right. Because I've been in circumstances where I've been the one to say, okay, I'll put down, you know, I'll be vulnerable. I'll do that. And often that can end up triggering a bunch of things. And all of a sudden you're in this chaotic storm because nobody's holding the masculine anymore. Right. And now you're in this wild ride. 
And what I've found in men's groups, the ones that are held this well, is that men can put down the masculine because they're being held by other men who are holding it for them. And that allows for a deep place of rest, of which myself, the first time I was in a in, particularly an intergenerational men's group, not just peers, but intergenerational, I found aspects of myself that were at rest, maybe for the first time ever. Like places I didn't even know were on, suddenly were able to go offline and I was able to find a type of rest. I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know this was possible. You know, the places that were like jostling for a position amongst the presence of women or whatever, even if there was no erotic attraction or whatever, or needing to impress or not impress or all these things that these programs that run when I'm amongst women suddenly could just chill out. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God. And so that's been the case for me now in, in many men's spaces is that ability to just find deep rest, deep reflection, you know, kinship, um, you know, shared experience, all these things that in many ways allow the vulnerability to kind of resensitize again, to then go out and meet the world in a different way. And in this case, for myself as a largely heterosexual man, that often, you know, if I'm in these spaces and I come back out to meet the woman, it's like supercharged erotic energy because you've been pol you've polarized again in a deep way. And oftentimes that can lead to such a great uh, meeting once again um, from the willingness to actually take space and come back. Yeah. I'm really glad that you spoke to the, the kind of like positionality of, of when you're around women and how men are kind of fighting for this hierarchical role of being the alpha male. And I think one of the things that is so important for us to acknowledge in these conversations at large is that, and maybe this is a personal opinion and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, but I, I think that most of the time what drives people is procreation. Mm. The animal is unconsciously at the wheel. And so most of what we do is actually driven by this intense primal drive to extend ourselves through the generations and when we're aware of that, I think it can really alter how we relate to the world, to ourselves and each other, that we can see that activation and we can see how we're being played by it rather than playing with it. Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes what's at the wheel. And I think it's important for all of us to really address that and look at that and not feel shameful about it or make it wrong, but to name it and to claim it and to own it so that you're in relationship with it, which I think is kind of what this story is about in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the way you articulated that, um, being playing with it instead of by it. Yeah. And that to me is where, again, this intersection of like the bad boy or the good boy, like this, the, the lack of relationship to that energy, particularly like erotic energy, um, the lack of skillfulness with it or the idea that it's not there. Right. Which again is generally, um, a kind of skirting over just pushed in the, in the repressed um, area of repression um, in a way it makes the good boy in some sense more dangerous than the ones that are actually just out with it. Um, and so the key for me is being able to come back into a relationship with it and to know, yeah, when for a man, let's say, when am I positioning for, you know, dominance or approval? When am I seeking grounding and embodiment? When am I seeking validation by actually seducing another, you know, all of these ways in which, you can develop a relationship, not to shame it, right, but to know it in a deep way. And maybe last thing I want to get to, because this is a great conversation, and uh, it's almost double the time that I initially thought. Um, but I'd love to make a point to the listeners, too. So let's say you're wondering, 
you know, as a woman or as a man or one who doesn't identify with either, but you're wondering like, so what, what's the, I don't know, useful takeaway maybe in this moment. And maybe I just want to say that one particular aspect, which I found really necessary is, you know, oftentimes, um, I'll use this one example that a woman would, because of this unconscious mothering dynamic would seek to mm, mold the man into a kind of a favorable version of a man that she likes. Right. And often that can be driven by also unconscious needs for security, for safety, for predictability, right. All these ways in which, um, that can feel like necessary, which is true. And like, as in those are totally valid things to want. But at the same time, there's this, um, almost inadvertent causality of the, the loss of arrows, right. The loss of polarity, the loss of charge, and it's kind of typical with most long-term relationships, right? It's kind of obvious. Oh, you know, you kind of lose that spark, right? And sometimes, often actually the couple is like, well, I guess that's just us. Or I guess, you know, we need more toys or, you know, like these kind of novelties um, are seen as the way through. But for me, the the necessary ingredient is actually to find out, and this goes both ways in the case of a man and woman, right? Like find those things that actually recharge that deep connection to source and particularly in the realm of embodiment or, or action or activity, all those ways as a necessary, um, yeah, juicing, right. That, that can be brought back to the relationship because I'll just use an example. Like one, in one couple, I know the partner was really not okay with a kind of extreme sport that, um, the, the man would love to participate in. Right. And, and was very like, this is so much a part of my life. And, and, and in some ways, consciously or not, she started to belittle it or make it seem like oh, it's not okay to do this or it's frivolous. You know, it's a hobby. What do you mean? We got other things we got to be doing. And I had a conversation with them and I was like, no, look, like this is really important. Like you need to put a stake in the ground and say, actually, you know, I love you and I'm doing this still like, and oftentimes that can be like confronting and even kind of, you know, it, it really harkens to this unwillingness to be domesticated, right? If domestication means yes, dear, you know, that's the old cliche. They say, you know, happy wife, happy life and all that stuff, right? That gets trotted out at most weddings. But there's a reason why that the consequence of that is the loss of deep erotic charge and, and you know, polarity and all the rest. And so I just say, know that how you steal the key, you know, retain that or seek it because that is the key to accessing that wildness or at least that primal instinctual place, which is connected to the wild again. Um, as a necessary ingredient, not just for relationship, right. But for a kind of necessary kinship with the rest of life, which is so much of what we need when, you know, biosphere is buckling and, you know, the wild places are getting more and more scarce that the way that we seek not to make them a backdrop to our lives, you know, every time we go on a hike or something, but actually, no, these places are actually calling to us as our original natures. I love that. And when you're talking about that specific example, I was like, yeah, that's, it really harkens to, again, what I was saying about the primal needs. And you were saying, you know, women are seeking security and safety. And again, this comes back to with women, when we're pregnant, when we have children, you know, on a primal level, we are seeking those things because as an animal, if you're pregnant or you have a newborn infant in your arms, you're much more susceptible and so there is going to be that primal driver that says, oh my gosh, this is an activity where my partner could die. So I'm going to either consciously or unconsciously try and prevent his death. But in doing so, you're also preventing his aliveness. 
you're, you know, trapping that part of him that needs to be close to death that needs to. And I think sometimes, of course, that can be pushed to an extreme. That's, that's a more of an addictive avoidance from being with life, you know, but if it's done in a truly healthy way, then it's, it's something that I like, I agree with you that it can be necessary. And in shutting that down, you can really kill off the erotic charge, the the energy there, because I think that it is an essential ingredient for that wild man, that beast within the male to be free, to be liberated, to have fun and to bring that juicy, wild, crazy energy back home to his partner or out into his work in the world or his mission in, you know, whatever it might be that is, um, his purpose, you know, he, he's bringing that fire out there into those other places. So yeah, I love that example. Such a, such a good point there. Mm. Thank you. Um, maybe last bit too, that comes to me is this, mm link between like belonging or safety and then, you know, liveness and adventure, uh, like freedom and security really, which is such a dynamic in most relationships. And I just want to say that, you know, I think it was Esther Perel who unpacked this a lot in mating in captivity. Um, but I, I know this kind of dance by largely, again, my time in Tamara, this community in Portugal, where what was demonstrated to me was when uh, a couple is embedded within a wider community, that provides that sense of belonging and that sense of safety and the sense of da da da, then the relationship is actually free to just be the relationship. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't have to be everything else. And so I think it's important to note in this culture and probably most people who are listening to this is that just to know that their understanding of relationship and those two things being necessarily kind of hitched is actually very specific and it's actually very modern. Yeah, Uh, totally. That this idea of like, well, they need to provide both security and adventure. Um, you know, be the wild one, but also the paying the bills and domestic. It's like, that's such a bizarre arrangement actually, because that wasn't ever how those two things weren't, they weren't together as the same, you know, in the past. Yeah. It's resultant of this cult of two dynamic that most people are engaged in today, which is it's you, me, our house, our kids, our life. And we don't actually have true community. We don't have people who we see regularly who are engaged in the areas of our lives that we would only perceive family to be a part of because we just don't live that way anymore, which is actually not conducive to happiness. So one of the things I was thinking about for women is women feel safer, more held when they have other women in their life that they trust, that they know would be there if their partner did pass away, that they wouldn't be left to rear their children or, even just live their life, they wouldn't be left alone. Right. But this whole monogamous cult of two, you and me forever thing, it just sets us up for failure because like, like we were saying earlier, nobody can be everything for you. So it really begs the question of this larger, um, topic that I think could be addressed at another time, or maybe you address it in another episode about the necessity of community and, you know, it sounds like Tamara's really doing a great job around exploring that and expressing that and helping people to understand what that means and what that looks like in a modern day. You know, how do we create that? How do we build that into our lives so that we can have successful relationships? Well, that seems a good place perhaps to end our conversation today. Uh, for those who are interested more in mythology and masculinity and sexuality and all the rest, um, welcome to check out 
themythicmasculine.com if you're not already listening to this on uh, the Mythic Masculine Network. Uh, as well as um, I'm involved in a film about Tamara, which we've been working on for a good whew, six years now, looking at these very uh, aspects. Called uh, The film is called Love School, and you can check out more about it at loveschoolfilm.com. And uh, once again, I want to say thank you, Heather, for joining me on this rich, lively conversation. My pleasure. And once again, where can they find more of your work? So the best place to find what I'm up to these days is on Instagram. It's a really amazing place for me because I'm a multidisciplinary artist, writer, photographer. I've been creating some animations lately, and I'm going to be bringing in other educators into the space. So the handle is kin.of.kind. And kin of kind for me also, I just wanted to say, is a place where we can come and gather as kin of kindness. So I'm going to be unpacking what is kindness? What does that mean? How does that show up in our day to day towards ourselves and others and finding ways to bring that into this modern space and deconstruct some of the things that are happening that are causing us to be a little bit more self-cherishing than serves for happiness. So beautiful. Thank you. And uh, one last uh, appreciation for this little fella who <laughs> gave us a few uh, little background growls. <laughs> Pacho, uh, the dog. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It's wagging his tail. Life's pretty good, isn't it, buddy? Truly a wild one. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this conversation on Iron John. If you'd like to join the course starting very soon, January 26th, 2022, Visit revisitingironjohn.com and register and join me on the adventure.